Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Another midterm election roundup. Candidates are mouthing off, but not in organized debates. And vote counting is a hot topic for election officials. Also, find out where former President Trump plans to rally. While Biden cheers the economy, warning signs emerge as mortgage rates hit a two-decade high. What the latest GDP numbers tell us. A Senate report explores the possibility of the CCP virus being linked to the Wuhan lab in China. What did the report find? Putin today said the world is facing its most dangerous decade since World War II. This as the Pentagon defends its plan to reduce American nuclear capability. And PayPal's controversial misinformation find seems to be back, but it's a little ambiguous. We take a closer look at the updated user agreement. The midterms are just 12 days away. In Arizona, a suspect was arrested in connection with the burglary of Democratic gubernatorial candidate Katie Hobbs' campaign headquarters. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details on this and other election updates. On Thursday, Phoenix police arrested an unnamed suspect who burglarized the Phoenix office of Katie Hobbs. Hobbs is Arizona's current Secretary of State and the Democratic nominee for governor. She blamed the incident on her opponent, Carrie Lake, saying she was spreading dangerous misinformation. In a statement posted on Twitter, Hobbs said the threats against Arizonans attempting to exercise their constitutional rights and their attacks on elected officials are the direct result of a concerted campaign of lies and intimidation. Police didn't say whether they believed the crime was politically motivated. Over in Nevada, Nye County entered its second day of hand-counting mail-in votes. Meanwhile, opponents have asked the state Supreme Court to stop the process. The American Civil Liberties Union of Nevada filed an emergency request early Thursday morning, just one hour before county officials resumed the count. On Wednesday, the county tallied about 900 of 1,950 mail-in votes received, or a little under half. And across the country, mail-in ballots are on the rise. According to an election monitoring project, more than 10 million people have cast mail-in ballots ahead of the coming midterm election. The project is managed by University of Florida professor Michael McDonald, and it tracks early voting activity among states that have reported data so far. Texas, California, Florida, and Georgia have reported more than 1.5 million in-person and mail-in votes as of Thursday afternoon, the project numbers show. But over in Pennsylvania, the counting is expected to be slow. Acting Secretary of State Lee Chapman, a Democrat, this week told a local NPR station that results won't be delivered on election night. She attributes the delay to election workers not being able to count mail-in ballots before election day. Moving on to Florida, former President Donald Trump plans to hold a get-out-the-vote rally with Senator Marco Rubio on November 6, just two days before the midterm elections. But Trump isn't staying in Florida. He's also scheduled to hold rallies in Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, according to separate press releases issued through the Save America Political Action Committee on Wednesday. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Lake later responded to the allegations made by Hobbs' team, calling them absolutely absurd. She went on to say, quote, I don't even know where her campaign office is. 
And as of today, nearly 14 million pre-election ballots have been cast in 44 states. That's according to data from election officials, Edison Research, and Catalyst. Florida continues to have the largest number of pre-election ballots cast for the midterm elections at nearly 2 million. Texas, California, and Georgia have each also seen more than 1 million ballots cast. And Republican Liz Cheney hopes to have influence on Capitol Hill even after voters ousted her from her seat in Congress. She's endorsed her first Democrat in a key race in Congress. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. Congresswoman Liz Cheney says her political career is not over and she's vowed to work against the tide of former President Trump and his supporters, even if that means working to help Democrats maintain control of Congress. Cheney has now endorsed Democrat Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin in a tight Michigan race that Republicans are trying to flip this November. Slotkin has bucked her party's leadership and is calling for new blood in D.C. Now she's fighting to hold on to her seat in the newly redrawn 7th District, expected to be one of the most competitive House races. Her opponent, Republican State Senator Tom Barrett. Barrett has raised questions about the 2020 presidential election, joining 10 other state lawmakers back in 2021, asking the U.S. Congress to look into allegations of voter fraud. Slotkin and Cheney both serve on the House Armed Services Committee and will appear together in a campaign rally in Michigan next Tuesday. And Congresswoman Liz Cheney is not the first Republican to endorse a Democrat over a Republican, countering Republicans' efforts to take back the House. Just a couple of days ago, Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska publicly announced that she'd vote to keep Democrat Congresswoman Mary Poltola representing Alaska's only House seat. Poltola just won a special election where she flipped the seat of late Republican Congressman Don Young. Now Republicans want to flip that seat back red. Trump was in Alaska campaigning for Sarah Palin to take that seat. But Senator Murkowski says she's voting the other way and would rather a Democrat hold that House seat over a Trump-endorsed candidate. Now, Trump has also endorsed Murkowski's opponent, Kelly Shabaka, to replace her in the Senate. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And the latest GDP data is out. While President Biden applauds it, Others point to warning signs. NTD's Iris Tao has more. After six months of steady decline, the U.S. economy has rebounded with a 2.6% growth rate in the third quarter. And the president on Thursday cheering that report. Today, the GDP results came out and the economy, in fact, is growing. And although it may not feel like it for everyone, people's incomes went up last quarter more than inflation went up. While the latest GDP numbers do look strong at first glance, there are warning signs about a slowdown. The 2.6 gain was driven almost entirely by a surge in exports, which is likely to be temporary. An increase in government spending also contributed to the gains. Meanwhile, consumer spending, which makes up about 70 percent of the U.S. economy, is slowing as inflation hurts Americans' buying power. But Biden, who's in New York talking about the economy, calls the latest number evidence that his party's economic policies are working. That's as he takes shots at Republicans as midterms are just now 12 days away. These protections are gone as well if the Republicans get their way, if Kevin gets his way in the Republican Congress. Tax credits to lower energy bills, gone. Corporate minimum tax, gone. 
The White House has recently shifted its messaging focus from abortion to the economy, which voters say they're concerned about the most. While Biden's now accusing the GOP of trying to make the economy worse, Republicans say just the opposite. Just four years ago, when Republicans were in the majority, America was on top. We had more jobs and people looking for jobs. We were energy independent. We were energy dominant. Today, the contrast couldn't be any clearer. To be blunt, folks, we're in a hole. Meanwhile, a sharp rise in interest rates has led to the biggest contraction in the housing market since the early months of the pandemic. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, was found to have violated the Hatch Act, a law prohibiting government officials from using their jobs to influence elections. That's over a retweet sent from his official Twitter account back in May saying, get your Democrats deliver merch today. There will be no disciplinary action and Klain was warned to be more careful in the future. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said today that they make the, take the provision seriously, but that they're not perfect. She also noted that many Trump administration officials violated the Hatch Act during his presidency. And Russian President Vladimir Putin today gave one of his longest speeches since the start of the war, saying the world is facing the most dangerous decade since World War II. Meanwhile, the Pentagon today defended its plans to reduce American nuclear capability. Russian President Vladimir Putin painted a picture of the Russian view on world events on Thursday. Now the historical period of undivided dominance of the West in world affairs is coming to an end. The unipolar world is becoming a thing of the past. We are at a historical turning point. Ahead, there is probably the most dangerous, unpredictable, and at the same time important decade since the end of World War II. Putin also denied having any intentions of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. The purpose of today's fuss around nuclear threats and the possible use of nuclear weapons is very primitive. He says Western states are just looking for arguments to turn Putin's allies against Russia. Also on Thursday, Pentagon documents were released showing that the U.S. will stop developing nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles. Senior military officials publicly recommend keeping it, but Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says... We have a lot of capability in our nuclear inventory, and I don't think this sends any message to Putin. The Biden administration says the U.S. already has the means to deter limited nuclear use. And the Senate released a new report today on the origins of the CCP virus. It says there's considerable evidence pointing to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. The report says, quote, substantial evidence suggests that the COVID-19 pandemic was the result of a research-related incident associated with a laboratory in Wuhan, China. The report goes on to say that this explanation is consistent with how the virus spread during the pandemic's early stages. It says a natural origin remains possible, but notes that the original animal host hasn't been identified. Senate committee staff produced the report under the direction of Republican Senator Richard Byrd. They spent 15 months poring over hundreds of scientific studies and interviewed dozens of experts. And PayPal has added a misinformation clause back into its user agreement. But it isn't directly saying users could be fined for it. Weeks ago, the company had said this clause was added to its user agreement by mistake. PayPal has added a misinformation restriction to the company's user agreement. 
as of Thursday afternoon, providing false, inaccurate, or misleading information is a restricted activity for PayPal users as per the company's user agreement. The user agreement then goes on to explain consequences for restricted activities, saying you will be liable to PayPal for the amount of PayPal's damages caused by your violation of the acceptable use policy. You acknowledge and agree that $2,500 per violation of the acceptable use policy is presently a reasonable minimum estimate of PayPal's actual damages. This has led many to speculate that the controversial misinformation fine is back, although the policy isn't clear because the misinformation clause was only added to restricted activities, but not to the acceptable use policy, which is to what the $2,500 fine applies to. In a statement to NTD, a spokesperson for PayPal said only users who violate the acceptable use policy may be fined. Earlier this month, PayPal removed the misinformation part from its user's agreement. Back then, the company said the clause was added by mistake. In response, various Republican senators sent a letter to the company's CEO, saying PayPal has consistently spread the dubious claim that this provision was never intended to be inserted in our policy, as stated by a company spokesperson. If accurate, this statement indicates an astonishing lack of internal oversight at PayPal. The senators gave PayPal until Friday to explain the processes and values that allowed the policy to move forward. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Elon Musk has a message for Twitter advertisers. He doesn't want the platform to become a, quote, free-for-all hellscape or anything can be said with no consequences. Ads are Twitter's main source of revenue. Advertisers worry that Musk and his promotion of free speech might stop moderating content altogether. But Musk today said he wants Twitter to be a place for healthy debate and no violence where everyone is welcome. Musk and Twitter have until tomorrow to close the deal. The world's richest man changed his Twitter profile to Chief Twit yesterday, suggesting they'll make the deadline. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, we look at some of the allegations leveled against the UK's newest prime minister with analysis from a senior British journalist. And over 70 Christians were reportedly killed in Nigeria in just two days. We hear from a geopolitical analyst who explains the situation. Turning to Britain, where the UK's newest Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, faces calls for a general election from the opposition Labour Party, as well as growing concerns from some on the right over his Conservative credentials. Earlier today, I spoke with Toby Young, General Secretary of the Free Speech Union and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Skeptic, about some of the allegations leveled at the UK's third leader in two months. Toby Young, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. There's skepticism among some on the right about whether Rishi Sunak's policies are truly conservative, along with concerns about his financial, familial, and political ties. Earlier this week, Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage called Sunak a globalist. What's your take on it? Well, I think um, there have always been um, different ideological strands within the Conservative Party. And in particular, there's always been this conflict between the more 
liberal libertarian strand um, and the more paternalistic strand. Um, and um, I think Rishi Sunak seems to be on one side of that divide. So he's very different from Boris Johnson. He seems to be less socially conservative and more economically liberal than Boris. Um, is he a globalist? I think that would be probably overstating it. Uh, but he does seem to have more links with organizations like the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and so on and so forth, than Boris Johnson did, and certainly than Liz Truss did. I don't think that means he'll be doing the bidding of these international organizations or reversing Brexit, which is what some people fear. But I think he's going to be a much more centrist um, uh, leader than either Boris or Liz Truss were. Sunak last year promoted central bank digital currencies. In a time when private citizens are increasingly targeted by big tech and fintech for their political views, at times with government prompting, what could a system like this mean for the UK? Yes, I think um, many people have expressed alarm by Rishi Sunak's enthusiasm for central bank digital currencies. Um, and uh, I'm sure that that will be uh, on the top of his agenda as prime minister. Um, but central bank digital currencies by themselves don't pose a threat to freedom of speech. It's only if they are programmed um, to prevent people spending their money freely um, in order to um, uh, enact the agenda of the authorities, that they then become an instrument of totalitarian control. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, it's a risk, because once the central bank digital currency is in place, it can then be programmed for that purpose. But I think Rishi Sunak um, wants to do one, but not the other. I think it's unlikely um, uh, that in contemporary Britain, a programmed central bank digital currency whereby, you know, you can't buy drinks with a high sugar content or you're restricted in how much alcohol you can buy each week or you're restricted about your consumption of products that, you know, depend on um, uh, uh, too much carbon. Um, I think it's unlikely that uh, a central bank digital currency introduced by Rishi Sunak will be used to pursue those kinds of political purposes. But, of course, once it's in place, if somebody less liberal than him succeeds him, then it could be used for that purpose. Sunak's father-in-law founded one of the world's leading companies for digital IDs, which is also a partner of the World Economic Forum. This has some people concerned about the rollout of these IDs. Is this a valid concern? Yeah, many people who are alarmed by Rishi Sunak's um, uh, installation in Number 10 point to the fact that his father-in-law um, co-chaired um, the World Economic Forum, I think, in 2013, and um, is, I think, the main shareholder in a company called Infosys, um, which has rolled out digital IDs uh, in India and seems to be part of the rollout of what people imagine will be a Chinese-style social credit system in India. And so that, 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 that is supposedly a reason for being concerned about Rishi Sunak occupying number 10 Downing Street. I think those fears are probably exaggerated. Um, I don't think because his fa father-in-law is involved in this company um, that he's going to um, roll out a social credit system in the UK. Um, but clearly, you know, we need to keep a pretty close eye on him and make sure that um, he doesn't start doing that.
You've called Britain the canary in the coal mine and predicted every Western country will become politically unstable. Could you elaborate? Well, I think the reason that Liz Truss's premiership was so short-lived is because her economic policies were rejected by the financial markets. Um, I think the difficulty for many Western countries, because they borrowed so much money to cushion the shock of the lockdowns and of mothballing their economies, because they borrowed so much money to pay people to stay at home and not work, um, they are now um, uh, completely at the beck and call of the financial markets. So political leaders will have no choice across the Western world but to introduce savage cuts, I think, to public expenditure and in particular to public services. And that's going to be very politically unpopular. So I think we're going to be entering a period of political instability because of the colossal mistake so many countries made in borrowing hundreds of billions of pounds, dollars, euros, um, to um, pay people to stay at home and not work because of the lockdowns, which I think were a catastrophic mistake. Toby Young from the Free Speech Union and the Daily Skeptic. Thank you. Thank you. And in Nigeria, over 70 Christians were reportedly killed in just two days. The West African nation remains one of the top countries in the world for the persecution of Christians. NTD's Jason Perry hears from a geopolitical analyst who helps explain the situation. It's top country in the world on the basis of persecution of Christians. Uh, at this point in time, and it's second only to China uh, to the number of attacks on churches. This week in Nigeria, over 70 Christians were killed in just two days, according to Morningstar News. And the week before, the outlet reports that over 100 Christians were shot and injured in another Nigerian village. Islamic terrorists from the Fulani ethnic group are said to be behind the attacks. They reportedly took place after five Fulani herdsmen were killed by Christian farmers over land disputes in different locations. Geopolitical analyst Irina Sukerman explained that terrorists like the Islamic State West Africa province have taken advantage of the unrest and are recruiting Fulanis to help gain control of the natural resources. She added that many of the Nigerian Christians are left defenseless against such attacks, in large part due to the corruption within the Nigerian government. On the one hand, they have trouble um, actually responding to these attacks. On the other hand, they're poorly trained. They're not, uh, they don't employ good policing or other law enforcement tactics. They're, they're accused of abuses and civilian abuses a lot of the times. You basically have a great deal of chaos and anarchy in essentially ungovernable uh, portions of the population. Uh, and that between that and government corruption, it's it's just very difficult to live, especially if, you know, if you're a Christian. Sukerman explained that the Nigerian government has been hesitant to provide firearms to the Christians. I, I don't think at the very top they're in support of this policy. In some, some of the officials may feel threatened. They may be afraid that the Christians will, will join the separatists and turn on the government, which has happened. She said arming the Christians would hopefully save lives, but it would not stop the fundamental problem of terrorist recruitment. She added that if anyone wants to help the Nigerian Christians, they should do so through grassroots organizations among the local populations in Nigeria. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Forbes magazine today released their annual valuations of the NBA franchises and the Golden State Warriors at an estimated worth of $7 billion top the list for the first time ever. Now, if you've been following Forbes, they've done this for more than two decades, and this is the first time a team other than the Lakers or the Knicks held the top spot. Golden State has won four of the last eight NBA titles and recently moved into a new arena, the Chase Center in San Francisco, that helped them generate an NBA record $765 million in revenue last year. Forbes then ranks the Knicks and Lakers second and third, followed by the Bulls and then the Celtics as the top five franchises above $4 billion. The average NBA franchise came in at $2.8 billion, the highest it's ever been. That's still, though, well below the NFL's average of nearly $4.5 billion, which Forbes estimated back in August. And now to high school sports. Football coach Joe Kennedy, that's the coach who was fired for praying on the field, who then took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, where he won this summer, will be reinstated according to court documents. Kennedy, who is an assistant coach for Bremerton High in Washington State, will get his job back on or before March 15 of 2023. Kennedy was represented by First Liberty Institute and his attorney confirmed to ABC News that he'll be moving back from Florida to Washington later this year to resume his position. And now for your sports scheduling this evening. The NBA is a quadruple header tonight, including a matchup of the defending champion Warriors taking on the Miami Heat. The NHL, meanwhile, has 10 games planned for this evening with the Boston Bruins, who have a league-high 12 points, hosting the Detroit Red Wings. And finally, the NFL's Thursday night football pits the Baltimore Ravens at Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks. And that's it for your sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.